And welcome to episode 90 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we actually have a decently large new release to talk about, HBO's Bad Education. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm doing well, Scott. I uh, I have had a little bit busier of a work week, so I'm feeling a little bit tired from that over the past few days. But definitely made the time last night to watch this <clears throat> debut. This came out. A little bit strange for a new release coming out at 8 p.m. on a Saturday, uh, but kind of bundled up on the couch because it was kind of a rainy day here in Boston. And, you know, it was uh, it was the perfect film, I think, to, to really take over my Saturday night in terms of uh, I'm pretty sure I watched Thoroughbreds, Corey Finley's first movie on a Saturday night, uh, kind of bundled up on a couch in a, in a blanket. And I wasn't expecting to get the same experience out of these two films because I think on the surface they're they're quite different subject matters. But somehow I. I felt some similarities in the two of them. I'm sure we'll get in more real, to that. Real feel-good films, both of them, aren't they? Oh, they, yeah. They, I mean, they honestly, really do I, just warm you up on a nice, uh, <laughs> you know, rainy evening or whatever. But um, basically rom-coms. Yeah, no, They're basically rom-coms. I mean, yeah, basically, if, if you had to classify them. Yeah. Now, it, it's nice to have, uh, you know, a bigger new release to talk about, though. Uh, I, I am excited to talk about this film. I have been looking forward to it. Um, ever since you know, I first first found out about it last year, I guess after after TIFF. But yeah, you know, we're still here in quarantine. Um, I had kind of a strange week as well, just because I finished my last classes of school ever, um, of any type of school ever. Um, so all I have is just a couple of, of exams to finish, and then the fun, I guess, begins again because I got all of my uh, my bar study materials. Um, this week and it was a in a cardboard box that weighed about 40 pounds so um, <laughs> a, as soon as I finish exams I guess I gotta hit the books on that it looks like it's going to be about five hours a day up until the uh, oh my gosh the the bar exam according to my study plan that I have online so when it when is yeah the bar this exam for should you? be a lot of fun currently it is supposed to be late July North Carolina has said we're holding strong with that for now but they will move it to September if they need to um, okay. Wow. Okay. Well, I was going to say which, maybe Wonder Woman 1984 could be your uh, congratulations. You're done with the bar gift, but I don't know. We'll see. That that would be nice. But I mean, the, the annoying thing is that the bar says we're not going to, you know, we, we could potentially change the date up until a month before the date, yeah. which would totally mess up your study plan because the study plans through the, the companies and everything without getting too detailed, they're very structured, right? They have like, this is what you need to do every single day for this much time leading up to the actual bar exam. So if the bar exam gets moved, that completely throws off your study plan. So hopefully that won't happen. But anyway, on to more interesting, uh, interesting matters, I think. Um, you know, we are thanking our lucky stars to have lasted another week of quarantine, just as I'm sure HBO is thanking their lucky stars that they acquired bad education at TIFF last year and can release it now while everyone is at home. Uh, Bad Education is the anticipated second film from Thoroughbreds director Corey Finley, and it tells the story of the largest embezzlement scheme in American public school history. Hugh Jackman stars as Frank Tassoni, the superintendent of New York's Roslyn School District. As the film opens, Tassoni is well-liked and has raised Roslyn's profile significantly in his tenure at the school. 
But things start to unravel when Assistant Superintendent Pam Glucken, played by Allison Janney, is discovered to have been using her school credit card for thousands of dollars worth of personal purchases. And when intrepid student journalist Rachel, played by Geraldine Viswanathan, began probing into the matter, she discovers that the scandal may go even higher than Glucken. Scott, does Finley's tale of corruption follow through on the promise he showed in Thoroughbreds, or is this a sophomore slump for the young director? Yeah, it's definitely not a sophomore slump. I we didn't really ever review Thoroughbreds on the podcast. I don't think we might have given it like a like five, you know back in the day when we did our like secondary reviews in the second part of our episodes. We might have like aired five minutes of it or something like that. And I hadn't watched it when you did. I came to it later. And uh, but I really really enjoyed uh, Thoroughbreds. I didn't like it quite as much as you did. I mean, it was a I think it was a five star movie for you. I don't remember if you gave it a ten or not, but. It, I think it was in your top five 10. of the year. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it was in your top 10 of 2018. And so when we came around to this and saw the subject matter, obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, you know, thoroughbreds being, you know, uh, not based on a true story. I don't believe at least not based on a true story. And Hopefully not. yeah, co coming to this one uh, and talking about, you know, taking taking a, you know, an embezzlement case from the early 2000s in Long Island, New York. And. I was just really curious how Corey Finley was going to translate these you know, very clear talents and skills and storytelling techniques that he'd had in Thoroughbreds really tight as well. I believe that movie was super short, 90 minutes. We even, I mean, you maybe, I think you even talked about how maybe it was 90, it could have been 90 seconds shorter as well. Um, I've changed but, my mind on that. Though. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so I was curious what he was going to make of this, you know, at least relatively true retelling of, of a real life event. Again, with anything, there's always going to be some some narrative flourishes, uh, fictional flourishes. Maybe it's a better way to put it with these true stories. But what you know, what what kind of story was he going to be able to tell using those techniques that he had? And Scott, I'm really happy to say that I think he pulled it off fantastically. I was, you know, some of the camera angles and and style, cinema, cinematography styles that he brought to Thoroughbreds and the music as well. I think some somehow he's able to work in here incredibly effectively and make this you know a lot more than just some sort of based on a true story drama that you might expect out of a lot of you know relatively inexperienced filmmakers which i mean Corey finley is a relatively inexperienced filmmaker still and what he's able to capture both you know from a production design perspective with the cinematography with the score with the setting uh as well as the performances he's able to get out of his cast i mean Nothing, I mean, Olivia, like you, people know how we feel about Annie Taylor-Joy and to the same extent Olivia Cook, although we've talked about her less on the podcast. Uh, they were great performances in Thoroughbreds. I mean, he's working with a real veteran cast here with Hugh Jackman, Allison Janney, even going deeper on the list with Ray Romano. Uh, and then also has some new faces with Geraldine Viswanathan and Alex Wolf, although less of a necessarily of a new face, but still a younger actor. And he just gets great performances out of all of them. And I won't hide the eight ball, Scott. This is my favorite film of the year so far. Yeah, I totally agree. This isn't a sophomore slump at all. Um, this is just another great film about, I think, the effect of wealth in America. Uh, if you want to connect it to Thoroughbreds in that way, I think that there's where the similarities lie. It's, it's sort of about the consequences that uh, maybe people experience after coming to some amount of wealth. Obviously, very different in, in a lot of other regards. And I think in particular yeah. here, the the setting in the world of education allows for Finley to make sort of some comments about the American educational system, which I think are, are somewhat interesting as well. And 
I think he, I, I do want to talk more about how we feel about these characters maybe at the end of the movie, but I do think he somehow pulls off a very difficult feat of making us feel anything other than disgust for these people, yeah. for, for Pam Glucken and for Frank Tassoni. I'm not saying that I'm coming away from this thinking they're good people. I certainly don't think that that's the case. But like I said, we, we probably should hate them a lot more than we do at the end of the movie. And I think that uh, is a huge tribute to Corey Finley. And yeah, like, you know, you say he's an inexperienced director and yeah, he is. He's only directed two movies, but you wouldn't know it by watching either of those movies because this guy just goes for it. Right. He is just yeah. there's an incredible confidence to the way that he makes film. It, it's films. It's like he's been doing it for years. Um, and and I, I, you know, I really admire that this film doesn't strike quite as much of a chord for me as Thoroughbreds, just because I think Thoroughbreds is just more my type of movie. Like, absolutely. But uh, I think this is a, a really interesting movie, um, has some very you know, provocative things to say, um, again, about wealth in America, about our American educational system. I think privilege more than even more so than wealth. Yeah. I think it's about privilege, which I think is because I think you could argue that like Allison Janney's character, Pam and Hugh Jackman, Harry Frank technically aren't super wealthy. I mean, they are relatively wealthy, I think, to parts of society. But if you if you juxtapose them to Ray Romano, who's like a, a morally like, relatively straight laced character. I think it's it's the uh, displays of privilege that they have and that they take advantage of, I think, is what it's really taking a crack at. And I think that you could also, to your point, tie that back to Thoroughbreds when you think about the privilege that I believe it was Anya Taylor-Joy's character kind of wielded in that scenario with you know her tutor, Olivia Cooks. Olivia Cooks. I mean, both of them being affluent and both of them kind of losing all sort of emotion whatsoever that that being yeah. sort of the the effect of their wealth is that they have no sense of empathy but regardless they're I think sociopaths this movie, which yes. is what this movie talks about yes yeah. there's a really there's actually a really funny line that ray romano gets about it but um regardless i think ultimately maybe this movie is kind of about the the ways that we rationalize maybe immoral sorts of actions to ourselves yeah. Um, if, if you want to just remove it from that context of education and affluence and stuff, I think that's sort of the thing that we get that a lot of people can relate to here uh, of what you see on display in, in bad education. So, yeah, I think this is a really smart film. I, you know, am so happy that Corey Finley, because I don't think Thoroughbreds still hasn't gotten the attention that I think it deserved. Yeah. Um, and and I'm, I'm so happy that he was able to follow through and prove it wasn't just a one hit wonder. And maybe we'll give some people, you know, cause to go back and say, hey, I should check this movie out. I kind of thought this was just, you know, some indie trash. But this guy obviously is, you know, a solid director. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think this is, you know, the best movie that has come out probably what, since we've been in quarantine. I, I think that that I, I don't I, it's not quite my favorite of the year, I don't think. But um, it's it's in the top five for sure right now. I, I think it's really strong. Yeah, I mean, HBO paid seventeen and a half million at TIFF for this film. They paid quite a lot of money. Usually, I think HBO distributing a film is is kind of bad for this film, but it, I think it actually might end up working pretty well uh, given the current state of things. And you know, we'll see what the submission requirements are for awards this year. Normally, I think HBO films wouldn't really be uh, candidates for awards just because they don't get theatrical releases. At least, not to my knowledge they don't get theatrical releases and so maybe they get a free pass this year if the uh, standards are revised although even then i'm not sure that it would but i think and i know this is probably the direction we're about to go like i think you have some really award awards buzzy performances from a couple a couple of these people and uh i hope you're right May this film 
not just in terms of the awards buzz you might get for the performances, but the awards buzz and the conversation that ultimately might be had around Corey Finley. Uh, maybe he'll get a Wikipedia page because he still doesn't have one. Uh, which <laughs> is pretty wild. Uh, That's to what me. this is all about, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, if, if you can win, an, if you could win an award, an Academy, you know, a, a notable, prestigious award, it take it, take it for what it, its value it might have, and you know, being from the Academy or the Golden Globes, whatever it might be. But if you can win an award uh, and not have a Wikipedia page, you probably would be an outlier. Yeah, um, I do want to say as well. You mentioned the music; I, it's really good, I think, and. Uh, I when I first heard it, I was like, "Oh, this has got to be the same person who scored Thoroughbreds because it has a similar vibe to it." But no, it's actually Michael Abels who did the score for us, and I yep. think get out as well. Um, he did, he, yeah. Very talented composer. So I wasn't surprised to see his name, even though it wasn't Eric Friedlander who who did uh, Thoroughbreds. But um, Scott, I think we can move on at this point um, to the performances. You know, we we've alluded to how we feel about them. But, you know, you have two veteran actors here at the top of the bill, as you mentioned, Hugh Jackman as Frank Tassoni and uh, Allison Janney as Pam Gluckin. How did you feel about these two performances with characters that maybe we should hate, but maybe we don't, to, to sort of the point that I was alluding to up front? Yeah, you were, you were mentioning that earlier, and that's funny, because I was watching I was watching this this film with my girlfriend last night, and at the end of the film, she's like, you know, I don't think this is right, but I feel... I, I feel bad for Frank Tassoni. I feel bad for it. And, I, and so it was really, it was funny when you, you made that comment earlier. And I think that's spot on. Like somehow the way these characters are crafted, they really do make you feel bad for them when all this starts happening, even though maybe you like know that you shouldn't. And I think part of that is because Hugh Jackman as Frank Tassoni, Allison Janney as Pam Gluckin, they play their characters, you know, whether it's what's written on the page or, what they're kind of being directed to do by Corey Finley. They just play them so perfectly. I think they, they play these kind of people who, whether it's for show or not, they have devoted their lives to bettering these students, right? Like you do have several, I think, I, 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 well, we'll get to that later, but there's a couple outbursts over the course of the film. One of which in particular is like, if you cut the clip for an Oscar, for an Oscar uh, nomination, it would be that clip probably. Um, but I think that it is they're both just really outstanding performances. I think the movie ended up being more about Frank Tassoni and Hugh Jackman than than maybe I had expected or that you would even expect from this type of movie. Like sometimes I think or other takes on this movie, you might get more of the perspective from Geraldine Vazwanathan's character as Rachel as being kind of the student reporter. You might get more of a perspective even from Ray Romano's character as sort of the head of the board of education or whatever his role is in this film. Like there's lots of different perspectives that this film normally would take but what they're doing instead is they're they're putting frank and to a lesser extent um pam at the center of the film telling the story from their perspective and that is how they're effectively able to get you to empathize with these characters and see yeah they're embezzling they're doing this thing that is objectively bad they're stealing taxpayer money although maybe there's some sort of higher level commentary on how we view white collar crimes and embezzlement and things like that relative to other types of crimes going on here as well but they're doing that and yet you still feel bad for them because you still feel like they're doing a service to these students like they're still you know you there, there's several scenes over the course of the film where you have them presenting their like ivy league acceptance the like number of ivy league acceptances for their students and you're like you, you hear the story about you know, they took them from relative obscurity in the high school scene in terms of the their like rank or whatever on a national scale for their high school. They've taken them to number four. If they do this one thing, they'll get them to number one. 
And this whole, it, it feels like the purpose of the movie is to get them to number one. If you don't know anything about going, uh, going about the film going into it. And obviously it's not about that. It takes a pivot. It turns a different direction. And I just think that these two central performances between Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney just play it perfectly. They play it believably. They're human beings. They get frustrated. They have their outbursts. Um, but they also still have these things that they care about, even if they also have maybe a darker side to them and, you know, a more malevolent side to them in, in other areas of their lives. And that just all feels very human. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think I ultimately still come down on probably not liking these characters at the end, sure, but yeah. I, because I yeah. think they're very self-absorbed. Right. And, and there is the question of, are they, you know, are their motivations like they claim to have, you know, decent motivations for what they're doing, but, are those really their motivations or is it more about, um, you know, is it more about getting attention for themselves? Because like, you know, the, the movie is bookended by this image of Hugh Jackman, very prestige like image of him yeah. standing in front of a crowd and, you know, the, the crowd erupting. And, you know, obviously you, you view this scene very differently and he views the scene very differently at the beginning of the movie and at the end. But it does make you think and it, it does leave you on the note of. I mean, this maybe this whole thing was just really about him getting attention for himself. But the fact that he even makes you think twice about whether we should empathize with these characters or not is, you know, impressive. And I mean, he did he kind of did the same thing in Thoroughbreds in a way that we won't go too far down that road. But um, Corey Finley, think, not Hugh Jackman. But yeah. yes, yes, Corey Finley. Sorry yeah. to don't want to confuse that. But I think Hugh Jackman is kind of a different role for him, which I thought was interesting because he on the one hand, he does have this charisma you know, that he relies on for a ton of his roles, but that charisma is really just a facade, right? Like not only, not only is like this intangible charisma a facade, but like his whole appearance is fake. And they, they go, they go far to like make that point. You see him like putting on his wrinkle cream and he, he gets plastic surgery. Like we see him getting plastic surgery in the movie. Yeah. And so and I think that goes to your point too, just to stop for one second and talk about this is that in terms of it's all about, it's all about elevating himself and getting higher because totally all he cares about is his self image. And at least that's, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll put it like this. I think that you can, it may be the ends justify the means in terms of like, all right, yes, he's doing it for himself. But at the end of the day, these kids are getting into better colleges. They're getting better educations, things like that. So maybe it, maybe it doesn't matter why you're doing the good thing. It's just that you're doing the good thing. I don't know, but I think you certainly are left to question and do question whether or not he's a good person because it's a lot about it's a lot about his own image, like both physically totally. and and mentally. No, totally. That's the exact same place that I think I'm in. But at the same time, right? I think that strangely, and this again speaks, I think, to the brilliance of Corey Finley and to Jackman's performance here. The scene which makes me like stop is the scene where he maybe the scene you were talking about, where he yells at a kid and he he goes off on this kid, and yet walking away from that scene, I was like. Points were made, you know, like that. I think the the sort his sort of motivation in this scene, again, maybe it's motivated by wanting attention for himself. But I think there is a larger commentary there on the American educational system, which I do want to get to, you know, a, a little bit further down the road. But I'll just say that up front. But uh, you know, as far as Alison Janney goes, contrasted with Hugh Jackman, this is such an Alison Janney role. Like, can you imagine anyone else playing this role better? Like. She she just you know she could do this role in her sleep, but I think she does really show up, um, and you know she she brings the Long Island attitude uh, that I think she's so good at portraying, um, and again generates sympathy because you 
understand, at least on some level, that she seems to be uh, motivated by wanting to provide for her family, right? And provide, send her kids to a good college or send, send yeah. at least the one kid to a good college. We also have Jimmy <laughs> Tatro showing up oh that, my God, from, from that. American Vandal, yeah. playing essentially his character from American Vandal. Which yeah, es- essentially five years later. Yeah. yeah. Um, Although the, the one thing, just to jump in on Alice and Jenny here, the one thing that I didn't love about that arc is that you're spot on how you're, you're characterizing this character. It felt a little bit more tell, tell, telling and not showing there. And the one scene, she's like, I wanted yeah. to provide for you all these things that you've asked me for all your sure. life, but you never, you know, you never see any of that on, on, the, on the screen. That's just, I, I will say that I think that I was surprised how, how more minor that character was than I thought it would be based on the first part of the film. Cause she really does kind of recede into the background of the movie uh, in the, in oh, the second yeah. half. That's totally what I was going to say next is that uh, unfortunately, yeah. I think that it does become more a Frank story by the end and actually to what to one of your points and i want to get to this in just a second when we talk about the supporting cast but i think i would have liked the movie even more just maybe because of my personal preferences if we had if the whole movie had been told from the perspective of rachel if we had yeah, seen this I as figured kind of you a would. journalistic type thriller <laughs> i think that could have been yeah. really interesting but again that's just me but Different since film. we're on that point why don't we move on to the the supporting cast geraldine viswanathan i mentioned there with who plays rachel Alex Wolf, unfortunately, I think is pretty wasted here. Um, not not that he was drunk on set, but that they wasted him in his role. Um, <laughs> he has he one. Have, he has one good scene in the cafeteria when he's reading the draft of the story mm-hmm. that he does a great job with. But yeah, yeah, I think there's an interesting line there that I kind of want to mention. But um, yeah, Ray Romano, who you mentioned, I think is he the principal of the school? Um, no, he's like the head of the. Board he's another administrator. Education. Yeah, he's the, the school board or whatever. Yeah, yeah, he, he's basically he's he's the superintendent's boss. He's Hugh Jackman's boss. Yeah. Um, yeah, he shows up. A few other random names who we've mentioned. Um, I think is his name Raphael Callas or something like that. He plays this former student of of uh, of Hugh Jackman's who he starts having kind of an affair with. It's kind Raphael of unclear what Cathal. he Yeah, he, he actually he was the co-writer of Blind Spotting, which is just kind of a random factor trivia about him but he plays uh, the person that Hugh Jackman is kind of having an affair with again we don't really understand this situation between Hugh Jackman and uh Steven Spadella who claims to be his spouse but um regardless those are some of the supporting cast members here who stood out to you Scott yeah I think it's hard just because you two, you have these like really titanic central roles being performed so well it's like really hard to break through but if I did have to point to someone it probably would be Geraldine Viswanathan as someone who I thought did a good job. It's not a super flashy role and and it does have this sort of like eye rolly chuckle feel of it. Not unlike Insomnia with Al Pacino telling Hillary Swank's character to, you know, you want to double check this just to make sure cuz you know, you have your it's your integrity on the line if you uh if you get this wrong with at the beginning of the film him her coming into Hugh Jackman's office for a quote on some puff piece about the Skyview Bridge that they're building and him saying you can make any story a journalistic endeavor if you if you want it to be. That's what they would tell you at Northwestern, and yeah, that's ultimately it, what leads downfall. Exactly, he says it's not a puff piece unless you want to make it a puff piece, yeah. and that's like he he digs his own grave right there in that scene. It's it's kind of great, honestly. I, I I really appreciated that scene in retrospect. Yeah, because as much as some stuff still would have happened because of the recklessness of Jimmy Tatro or Tatro, however you pronounce his name's character shopping at the Ace Hardware with that's like the relative of I forget. Was it Ray Romano or whoever it was like somebody's relative? It was it was she was Allison. He was Allison Janney's son, right? But from yeah, a but, different but, marriage, she, but, I think. but there was an Ace Hardware 
like employee who saw the card or like I was just talking about oh, the, right. okay. like who ends up like telling one of the members of like the school board or, or yeah. whatever what happens and 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 that's how Allison Janney's part in it unravels but then it's only right. when Rachel Viswanathan's character digs deeper that they're able to really unearth everything related to Hugh Jackman's character which is kind of the ironic uh, callback to the beginning of the film when she tells it to dig deeper. Regardless, I think that would be the performance that stood out. And, and if, if I had to pick a particular moment of standout, it actually probably would be the the scene between her and Alex Wolf in the cafeteria. I think that is like the one moment that Alex Wolf has to to show that you know, hey, I'm a I'm a really good actor, and maybe I should have been given more to do in this film. Uh, and I think to your point as well, a, a, another interesting, if not scathing, comment about the, how the high school education system work. I think ties into that theme as well in that scene. But was there someone else that stood out for you? No, I think you've mentioned the ones. I do want to say, since I kind of brought the point up a minute ago, I think that this would have been interesting to see as sort of a journalistic thriller, not just because I like those types of movies, but also because I think there is maybe a slightly underdeveloped idea here about the fact that Rachel is the one who sees through everything, right? And ultimately goes through with the story, right? The fact that it is a young person who has like the most clear moral compass here of, look, I know what's what's right and wrong. Like Hugh Jackman kind of tries to intimidate her being like, look, if you come forward with this, like think about what it's going to do to all these families and basically using all of the justifications that he's used to himself about why he hasn't, you know, come forward and stuff. And, and, and you know, but but she ultimately still decides to come forward, right? Because I think she she has the clearest sense of what is right and what is wrong in of anyone in the movie, perhaps. And there's probably an interesting idea to explore there about, why it is this young person, this high school student who is the one who who has that that clarity. On the other hand, I do think as far as Alex Wolf goes, the, the line I was talking about, he does have an interesting line where he says, like, I I asked him when when he reads the story, he says, like, oh crap. And he he was supposed to be writing my college letter, my college acceptance letter or whatever. Or letter of, letter of recommendation. Application letter. Yeah. Yeah. Um talking about Hugh Jackman's character, which I think is interesting, number one, because it shows you know, what a good educator, good person at his job, I guess, that Hugh Jackman was and that he really was investing in these kids yep. uh, ultimately. But also, I think, kind of shows maybe that even the students, right, are kind of weighing the pros and cons in the same way that maybe the adults are here of like, do I really want to come forward because this could sabotage my college application letter? Or my future, so, my, my entire future. Yeah. There is a counterpoint there, which I think is interesting. Maybe it's just because I love movies where people go through boxes of documents and we kind of we we come very close to getting that here. She goes down into the basement and I was like, here we go. And they didn't really get all the way there, unfortunately. But um, I mean, yeah, I, dude, she has all these papers spread out on her floor in her room. She has you don't them get the physical boxes, stuff, right? but you don't yeah. see like Mark Ruffalo, you know, ruffling through the boxes and being like the Ruffalo the, the, ruffling. The, the great montage of like. Here he opens one box and the papers are assembled around him, and then time passes, and by the end of the day, they're all just spread out on the floor around him. I you hear that, that. director? You get that. an extra full star if you have a shot like that in your movie from Scott. I live for that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I think it could have been interesting from that aspect. I may have even liked it even more, but I, you know, I, I don't certainly don't blame them for telling the story from this perspective based on what they were going. For. It's more Otherwise, unique think- in a different film. I think it's more interesting to me. That yeah. they're telling you a different a different perspective from what I, kind of what I was saying earlier. Ray Romano, I think, is good. I don't think he has a ton to do, but I, I do want to highlight like the, the most hilarious line in the movie clearly is when they go to Alice and Janney and are kind of having an intervention with her about 
what's happened. And they are Hugh Jackman calls her all these names. He said he says she's a sociopath, all of this stuff. Uh, and basically, he ends up giving her a signal, so yeah, like saying, "Go along with this" or whatever. And she, so she starts kind of going along with it and be like, "There's, I'm so ashamed. There's no excuse for what I've done." And Ray Romano is just like, "Well, the sociopath." <laughs> yeah. She's like, "Yeah, right." Yeah, that <laughs> um, that that means she's like, which was great. You're, "You're sick. You're sick." <laughs> that was like the sharp dialogue from Thoroughbreds that, like, I maybe you miss in other places, but like, I think that's by design. I don't think this this is obviously not the same. Time. Okay, Scott, moving on maybe a little bit to some of the, the plot and themes. Let's talk, we have talked a little bit about empathy for the characters. Let's talk about the um, sort of the commentary on the educational system as a whole. And maybe, you know, I alluded to that scene earlier where he kind of yells at the kid, which I think is one really important scene to that idea. But any other moments you want to highlight it about what the movie is saying, maybe? Yeah, I think that it's kind of littered throughout the film. It's hard to call out one specific moment for this point. But I, I think for me, one of the I mean, I think the big critique of the film is like, what is the point of like your education in high school? Like, is the point to go to an Ivy League school or is the point to learn? Like, is, is the point to fill out this application, send it off to a bunch of places and see what the best place is that you get accepted? Or is the point that you learn how to read in the case of this kid in the scene, right? Like, can you, can you read the word accelerated or is it just important that you get into a good call, like getting into a good college? And I'm simple. I'm definitely simplifying it a little bit there, but I think ultimately like that is one of the key questions that the film is asking about education. And like, as someone who went like we both, like we both went to a relatively elite high school where a lot of the design of the, of the school, at least for some people, if you want to choose to approach it this way is to get into as good a college as you can. Uh, going out of it and some of the advantages that you have in that situation, you know, whether it be the classes or the programs that offer, but like a lot of things that people do is to pad your resume, to pad your college application and do all these things. And I think it's a it's really the same thing in law school. Let me tell you, oh, I'm sure. And, and, <laughs> I have that and resume. it's, it's true of, of like almost any professional program that you're going to go into, right? Like what's your test score? Like, what's your GPA? And like your essay in a lot of places is going to be somewhat of an afterthought. It's going to be like the third most important thing on your application. Um, and so it's really interesting that, you know, I think the, this movie is trying to, it's sometimes subtly, it's sometimes more overtly, like question whether or not that is what the end goal of this, of this education system should be. Should it be to be number one and like to have your high school be number one? in the country or should it be to educate your students well now those things aren't you know aren't so like aren't mutually exclusive right like yes i'm sure they're educating their students well to some extent in this school right but are they really providing the fourth best education to their students in the country we don't know we don't know right and i think that the the scene that you're talking about here with this with the child uh kind of a recurring almost scene throughout the film that happens a couple different times is showing you that like this kid, like this mother wants his kid to get into the accelerated Omni program or whatever it's called in the film. So he has a better chance of getting into like the best college that he can like 10 years from now. And so I think that there's a really interesting take there that the, like that she's essentially lobbying for her kid to be in the Omni program, but he can't even read like the paragraph that clearly she has written for him. And so there's other subtler moments throughout the film it's hard for me to point exactly to one or two specifically, but I think that is like the, the culmination of a lot of smaller, uh, more subtle scenes in the film. Yeah. And 
even to go a step further than that, I think like it's almost about appreciation and respect for educators and for the administrators who provide this quality education. Um, and I think you get that in that scene in particular, right? Because Hugh Jackman goes off on the mother about like, don't you remember like the teachers who sat with you and all of this stuff? Like, I think he feels like he deserves, uh, you know, respect for really investing in education. Again, we don't know what his motives were for doing that, but it seems like he at least has some appreciation for the value of education. I mean, he tells Ray Romano right in that, in that football and when they're in the football stadium, he's like, look, if I just wanted money, I would have gone off and, you know, put it on wall street. I I'd be out of here, but I'm still here because I, you know, want to educate the kids, right? Like I, I have some belief in this educational system. And so that's why I didn't just take the money and peace out. Um, and, and so I think that's interesting because also when you think about, right, the relationship that happens with him and, and Kyle, which is the Raphael, I forgot what his name was. Casal. Casal um, character, because he is a former student of Frank's, right? But he has not gone on to an Ivy League college. He, in fact, we learn he dropped out of college and is now working as a bartender. Um, and well, I think that I is- think, I think he might be like a male stripper actually, but yeah. Yes, he's a dancer. He's a dancer. Yeah. But they first meet, he's tending bar or whatever. But regardless, but I think that Frank connects with him because, because Kyle connects with him, right? He's, he cares about this person who was his educator all these years ago and not just because, you know, uh, of what of school he what, can get him into. Right. What he was able to get him, like the results he was able to get him. He actually cares for him as a person. And so I think that's why this connection develops. And I think that's a really interesting idea. I think the movie could have gone maybe a little further about like, are we paying these people enough, um, you know, to, to do the type of job that they're doing, like to invest in our children, to give our children a better future, but maybe sabotaging their own future because they aren't making a lot of money to do this. Yeah. But again, I think there is a line in the sand that, hey, we're not necessarily doing this for the money. We're not necessarily embezzling because of the money. We're embezzling just you know, to, to make it from day to day, I guess, because we, and we want to continue this job. So I think there is something there about, um, maybe this is a reason why they turn to embezzlement that, um, because they just aren't, you know, being compensated enough, maybe for the quality of work that they feel that they're doing, which I think is interesting. Yeah, maybe. I don't know if I totally agree with that final point. It's a, it's, it's a little bit of a stretch maybe, but I do keep going back to that scene where he's talking about, you know, think about, do you, don't you ever just think about the teachers who sat with you and all of this stuff? Like, I, I think there is like a, an element of educators aren't being respected enough in the yeah. current system. It, it, to me, though, to go along with, I think, a couple other things in the film where you see him kind of like post hoc try to justify things. It's like one, the way that he also explains it to Ray Romano's character, too. It's like, I did this on accident one time. And then I realized no one cared or no one checked. Like no one was policing me on this. Yeah. And so I thought, why not keep going? And I think it's like a post hoc justification of, so you have this like slippery slope of things. And, and then after the fact, now that he's been caught, it's like, well, you know what? Really? We deserve this. Like we're te- like, we deserve more than we're compensated now. And so I shouldn't be getting in trouble for all of these reasons and all these people that I've helped. And this like greater goal of helping all these kids get better educations in college or whatever justifies again all these means along the way and all these indiscretions that might have been perpetrated 
to the tune of like $11 million or whatever when all was said and done. But that ultimately is what justified it. You know, and that, that to me felt more like a post hoc justification. And it might be valid. Like, absolutely. I'm not saying it's not valid. But I wonder if it was more just like drunk on privilege, this idea of self-image and et cetera, et cetera. Like kind of, I guess, um, snowballing over time. And yes, it was this innocent thing that happened this one time. But at some point, paying yourself a million dollars to print some pamphlets or whatever it was that that his uh, husband or I don't know, domestic partner, whatever you call it, was doing just at some point it got, it got out of control. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I agree with what you're saying in the sense that and I mean, I think this is the difficulty of the character, right? Like why we can't fully empathize with him. We can't fully hate him. Right. Because he brings up a good point of, hey, educators probably aren't being paid enough. But also, that's probably not the reason, ultimately, why he was embezzling money, why he wants more you know, appreciation. It's probably because he's self-interested and he likes the applause and he likes, you know, yep. people like Kyle who, you know, appreciate him and stuff like that. Um, and so I yeah, like I said, I think that's the that's the difficulty of the character that his motivations that he, his stated motivations are persuasive, but they aren't actually his real motivations. And they are just the ways that he has convinced himself that he is actually, what he's actually doing is the right thing, right? Because, you know, this is about the larger educational system. And if I come forward with this, like, if, if this is revealed, it's going to hurt so many families that it's going to be so much worse if it comes forward than it is if I just, you know, keep taking 60 cents for a bagel every day. Yep. Um, it's going to sabotage all of your, all of your chances to get into Ivy league schools, blah, 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 all of this. Uh, it's like, he's looking at it. It's a very like utilitarian worldview that he's like, what's but, the moral imperative? Uh, yeah, ex exactly. But I don't want to go too far into like John Stuart Mill here, but, um, yeah. Scott, is there anything else you want to say thematically about what's going on here about this idea of like self justification of your actions about empathizing with any of the characters? why maybe we should or shouldn't at the end of the movie. Yeah. You know, I will say just from an empathy perspective, I think that it's one of those things where it's really easy to sink into a rhythm of, you know, I got this thing one time. And so because, uh, because I received it one time or because this thing happened one time and I got away with it, it becomes my new norm where sooner or later you don't even think about it anymore. You just think about like, Oh, like, I deserve this and I'm not going to get caught. And so it doesn't matter. Right. And I think that it's, it's really interesting kind of the, the trap that you lay for yourself. I think one of the really interesting points that is, it's really just a very brief thing that happens toward the end is the Phil, the auditor, whatever is also getting arrested at the end of the film. And he's just a total patsy basically uh, for, for this entire scheme. I mean, yeah, yes. be because he figures it out and Hugh Jackman basically just scares him into shutting up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's that and also the fact that, it, you know, it was technically his fault to begin with, right? He had just been taking the word of Alice and Janney, yeah. Janney's character, Pam, over time. And I think that, you know, it. I was watching, I guess, I, it made me think, I guess, of, of McMillions, which I was watching earlier this year, which is another HBO uh, show. That's a, that's a documentary series and about how the ramifications of the of the indiscretions that you cause, like you may think that, oh, there that stealing money from a multi-million dollar organization or maybe even multi-billion dollar organization like mcdonald's 
there aren't any that, that's a victimless crime almost right because you're just stealing money from a large corporation obviously a little bit different with a, with a public school system but uh, that's a relatively victimless crime but really when all said and done you when you get caught and you know the truth comes out you actually lose a lot of people their jobs you lose you know for in the mcdonald's case you lose everyone at the printing company's jobs because they go out of business you lose all you know all the jobs at the marketing company that was running the mcdonald's uh, monopoly game they all lose their jobs because the company goes out of business and it turns out the ripple effects of you doing these crimes that you thought were relatively victimless which i think if you asked these like these real life characters like you know i didn't really feel like i was hurting anyone because it's it's taxpayer dollars the budget gets approved no one gets hurt and i just take money and uh and i live and i live my life right truth is that's not really what happens what actually happens when you get caught someone like phil loses his job gets arrested all these students who might have gotten into Ivy League schools no longer can't Ivy schools. And it's your fault. It is your fault that that happens yeah. because it's your indiscretions. Um, and so I think that there's this, these really interesting ripple effect of what at first, these white collar crimes seemingly having really no victim to them. And in reality, the the consequences span so much further just than you yourself when you when you when things do unravel. And I think that's something interesting about the film. Yeah, and there's that scene. Is it like a press conference or something where where Hugh Jackman is basically confronted with a bunch of parents who were yelling at him about how immoral he has been? And I think it, the way that he plays the scene, it's like this is the first time that he's actually had to yeah. think about the consequences on real people. Here are real people who are yelling at him about what he's done, and he's like, "Crap, well, maybe I have actually hurt people." But yeah, ultimately, I think this is just a movie about how you should have a good auditor because as we also learn in the postscript at the end of the movie, because of like a, a bookkeeping error, uh, Frank to Sony is still getting paid like thousands of dollars by the school district. $178,000 yeah. every single year is pension. Oh, my, my father is available is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> as to be your auditor, but regardless, yeah, we'll add his email um, address in the show notes. Take a look. Oh yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> Well, I think that that should just about do it, Scott, for our discussion. Um, we can move into the wrap up now. What's your favorite scene or moment from Bad Education? Yeah, to, to me, it's I think there's a lot of individual strung together periods of time that are just like really awesome in the film. But I think it, it, the standout scene, just because it does add that like really like shot of humor into the film is one that you were referencing earlier, where you do have this confrontation between Frank and Pam and you have the board as well in the room as well. And they're, and they're scolding Pam. That's basically what they're doing. They're scolding her, telling her that she's not going to be able to keep her job. And it's also the first time, I think, in the movie, again, if you don't know what's going on, that you realize that actually Frank uh, is, is in on this as well because he's not mm -hmm. making eye contact with Pam. I think it's really well acted. And it's just really, and like I said, really well written as well to get in those, those jokes and, and jabs from Ray Romano's character as well. As innocent as they might have been, they were, they were very funny. Yeah, that's a great scene. I'll just highlight one moment I really like is after basically Rachel has this conversation with her father about kind of what what do I want to do? Do I want to come forward with the story? Is it going to hurt people whatsoever? And this kind of like in limbo about what she's going to do at the end of the scene. And then we get Hugh Jackman walking in. The music really kicks in at this moment. And everyone just turns to look at him as he walks in. And Ray Romano, I believe it is, hands him the newspaper, the student newspaper. And there you see that, um, you know, the whole story and, and see that she went through with it. I just think it's really cool that the student newspaper was the one who beat everyone to this story. Yeah. And not because like, you know, the, it, it was really like 
that she just had the the will to look through all these public records, right? Like that's a point through the whole movie is these are public records, right? Like anyone with half a brain that wanted to could go find these public records and see all of these could find the purchase orders basically yeah. is what a public record and see the that fake, all of this money companies, was yeah. yeah spent on pizza ovens and all this stuff that the school never even received although maybe the middle school received it because they're making great pizzas over there every day but um yeah but yeah Stop no, so and grab I, yourself a slice. yeah <laughs> so of course i love that element of you know the the student journalist who is hungry is the one who just through sheer persistence alone is the one who is able to crack the story and beats all of these big publications to it. I really like that element. I think that scene was just kind of like a F yeah moment when you see the the front of the newspaper. So that was cool. Yep. All right. Put a score on it, Scott. You said it's your favorite movie of the year. How highly does it rank for you? 9.0. Yeah. I'm just a little bit lower. 8.8. I think this is a really great movie. Again, in my top five for the year, um, a few small quibbles, but like there is no reason why you should not watch this movie right now. Um, yeah, the the only real quibble I have is that again, Pam kind of gets put on the back burner a little bit in the mm-hmm. second half of the film. I wanted a little bit more from Rachel and some of the kids' perspectives as well. Yeah. And the whole thing with the father, I didn't think was super necessary. Like her dad having been done for insider trading, um, even yeah. though he was kind of innocent. He, again, he he was kind of like the fill in that situation almost. Uh-huh. Um, and her. I think that scene was done the best it could be done. It was like a super cliche scene. I'm like, what should it was I do? A little dead? Convenient, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just feel like it ultimately would, it wasn't necessary. And um, I wish that time could have been spent more developing just Rachel as a character or even Pam, but 9.0. Yeah. I'm, great movie. Like fantastic. No, ab- Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's a great one. Uh, and like I said, no excuse for not watching it. I mean, I guess if you don't have HBO, but yeah. um, otherwise, if you have HBO, there's nothing better to do in quarantine. This may end up being one of the best movies of the year. Who knows how many more movies we're even going to have this year. But um, okay, that's that's our review of Bad Education, Scott. When we come back, we are going to talk about some new casting news for Olivia Wilde's next movie, uh, as well as the latest coronavirus updates on the, the global cinema market. Uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, we'll move on to the news now, and and we'll start with you with the latest coronavirus release date updates that you've been so dutifully providing us with these past few weeks. Yes, nothing nothing like being the bearer of bad news on a weekly basis for everyone is my favorite activity (laughs) of the week. Yeah, and, you know, uh, some bad news, to say the least, continued. I think we actually did have some silver linings last week with some of the first shots of Dune that we talked about and some things like that, but a lot of the time it's been release dates getting pushed back and uh, we kind of returned to that norm this week as well as uh, an announcement that not ultimately that surprising given that they haven't been able to start production when I believe they were supposed to be starting production, but Mission Impossible 7 and 8, which were being filmed simultaneously and then going to be released in consecutive years, those have been pushed back to Thanksgiving. Originally, Mission Impossible 7 was going to be coming out in the summer of 2021 and then eight in 2022. And now they're both coming out, I believe. Well, I believe, I believe mission possible seven is coming out around Thanksgiving and then mission impossible eight is coming out in maybe August of 2022. I need to double check that one. But the, I think the point is, is that unfortunately 
we're going to have to wait a little bit longer to see Tom Cruise, although he's he's been migrating since the coronavirus started from the summer to uh, the holiday season because obviously Top Gun Maverick has been delayed this year as well. So maybe he'll start becoming a, a holiday stalwart in the movie theater. At least he will over the next few years. I'd, hey, I'd be okay with that. As you know, he's my favorite actor. So, um, yeah, it's it's disappointing that to see Mission Impossible get bumped by a little bit. But, you know, if everything holds as it is right now, we're going to have plenty in 2021, I think, to tie this over until uh, we get Mission Impossible 7. Yeah, I, I, whenever theaters do reopen, just the, the release date pileup that is happening and will only continue to get worse the longer things go on if say Tenet and Mulan and Wonder Woman 1984 get pushed back further into the year. It's only going to continue to pile up uh, to say, to say the least, but uh, unfortunately, yes, that mission impossible is getting delayed for those people who were fans of, of venom and fans of comic movies in general, uh, that sequel uh, we did hear either a couple, I think a couple weeks ago, we did hear that was getting, that has been pushed back to next year. Uh, that was originally coming out this fall, but the sequel to venom venom two uh, was given a title this past week by uh warner brothers and and the oh, i'm sorry no sony not warner brothers at uh, sony the people who own the spider-man prop universe property and uh, that is going to be venom let there be carnage referencing of course woody harrelson's uh character carnage which was briefly seen in, in the mid-credits scene of the original venom movie scott uh, know that you didn't see venom when it came out in 20 i believe it was 2018 when that film came out and uh i wonder if I, if I asked you if you were excited by this title at all, what your response would be, even though I, I already know the answer. <laughs> yeah, no. In fact, I, I think that, you know, like you said, I haven't seen Venom. I didn't see it in 2018. I still haven't seen it. And actually, the, the subtitle to this sequel somewhat confirms to me maybe what, what, that what I ex- expect the first movie is, is probably pretty accurate. And, and in which case, I, I probably wouldn't enjoy it. But Hey, I, I anticipate we'll probably maybe be doing this movie for the podcast. It's obviously too far away to say, but yeah. um, if that is the case, then I will go back and watch the first Venom. But uh, yeah, this doesn't exactly give me huge hope for, I guess, the tone of the movie. If, the, if this is the title. Yeah, there were a couple of good things about Venom, the original movie, but only a couple. So hopefully they can they can shore up the problems for for let there be carnage and carnage can ensue. It wasn't lost on me that Twitter was quick to make some jokes about, uh, Oh, Venom two are already referencing its reviews, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, uh, which I thought was, uh, not surprising, but also funny that those jokes came out either way. Uh, Venom, Venom sequel, which I guess technically isn't called Venom two anymore. It's just Venom. Let there be carnage has been titled and that will be coming out. I believe in the first half of next year, sometime, maybe March or somewhere in there could be wrong about that. Someone can double double fact check me on that, but it doesn't really matter. Anyway, uh, last bit of, of coronavirus news update before we do get to something I'll say more interesting. Although I will say this next, this last bit is interesting as well as the A24 announced that they're going to be auctioning off and have already started to auction off a bunch of props from uh, their independent movies that they produce and, and distribute. Uh, some of the most notable items being the, the May Queen dress from Midsommar, the Furby... Oh, go ahead. At, at one point today, the Harga dress was going for thirty thousand dollars. At one point today, I mean, I imagine it only went up from there. So That's, I haven't yeah. checked, but yeah, I mean, so, uh, another movie that knows auctions very well, Uncut Gems, the the jeweled Furby. I don't even know how else to describe that thing. That that Howie 
uh, Adam Sandler's character yeah. has in that movie is also an auction item. And there's just a bunch of stuff. Uh, yeah, also, uh, it's not just movies too, because they have some euphoria items at least they have the, that's true. Uh, the, the purple the hoodie, hoodie that hoodie, Rue yeah. wears frequently in the show as well was, was up there. Yeah. There's just some very, some very cool stuff. I think uh, Kevin Garnett's uh, Celtics Jersey from the mm-hmm. movie is going to be uh, in the auctioning, which I'm sure will go for quite a bit, a uh, bit, some of money from someone around the Boston area probably. Um, but yeah, no, I think there's just a lot of really cool stuff. And and the point of that is not to fund a 24, but to actually donate to local New York city charities. Cause a 24 is based in New York city. So uh, obviously one of the city's hardest hit in the U S by the coronavirus and uh, going to hospitals in, in the surrounding five boroughs area, they have a charity. Some of the, some of the, I guess certain auctions are going for certain hospitals, certain charities. I know there's a couple in Brooklyn, a couple in Queens, a couple in Manhattan. Uh, so they're spreading out the the wealth there quite literally, I suppose. And uh, that it was really cool. It's really cool to see stuff like that go and uh, kind of funny to laugh at some of the absurd dollar figures that some of these items I'm, I'm sure will ultimately go for, including the May Queen dress from, from Midsommar. That's wild that just at one point it was at 30K. Yeah. Uh, I, on the topic of A24, I do find it interesting, too, that they haven't really said much about the impact of the virus on their release dates for movies yet. I think that like The Green Knight might have been the one that was going to be coming out the soonest, and they still haven't pushed it back or anything like that. Or you know, They just haven't really said anything about it. Zola is, is a movie that was coming out relatively soon as well that I was looking forward to. So they've been pretty quiet about their release dates. And what's going to happen with those? I, I do. I, I mean, I would have thought that maybe they would try to release some of these movies to digital. Like maybe The Green Knight it, it generated a lot of buzz when that trailer came out, um, but they haven't said much so far, which is, I guess, somewhat interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, they're one of. The, I mean, yes, they are an independent studio, but they are one of the major studios that that hasn't really talked too much about their release date plans and and how coronavirus has changed that. And you're right. The green Knight, I think is the really first major release on their calendar scheduled to come out about a month from now, I think at the end of may. And we'll see if uh, it it seems unlikely that that date would hold for a full theatrical release, but maybe they have other plans in mind as well. There they have uh, plenty of resources at their disposal. They have a partnership, for example, with, with Apple. Uh, You know, I think that they are distributing or helping, or Apple is distributing, I can't remember exactly what the deal is, but A24 is going to be distributing Apple's films in theaters. And uh, so I know Sofia Coppola's movie On the Rocks was going to be distributed by A24, and that's an Apple TV Plus production. And so I wonder if they might be spinning something up with Apple uh, to do some sort of like co-distribution deal on some of these films. I don't know if The Green Knight would be the right candidate for that, but maybe even an even smaller film that they might be doing might be a good candidate for that. But we'll see. I'm sure they're figuring stuff out over there, and I... I'll be excited uh, to see any of their films that come out because yes, they can be hit and miss, but uh, I generally like what they are producing. Yeah. Zola might actually be a good candidate for that, given that the movie was born out of the internet, right? It was born out of a Twitter, Twitter thread. And that, that is the plot of the movie. And so people on the internet are probably going to be somewhat familiar with the story. So that might actually be a good candidate, but you know, I guess they'll cross that bridge when they come to it. Um, but yeah, regardless, looking forward to those movies when they do release um, in whatever format. And Scott, another movie that I'm looking forward to is the next film from Olivia Wilde. Of course, uh, last year she had her directorial debut with Booksmart, which was one of our favorite movies of the year. It was in your top 10. It was like number 12 or 13 on my list. Um, 
And so obviously, you know, we're, we're very interested to hear about her next project. And we got a lot of news about that project this week. Um, it is going to be a psychological thriller called Don't Worry, Darling. And we got, I, I, I assume, the top three names in, in the cast this week. Uh, Shia LaBeouf and Chris Pine will be playing supporting roles um, and starring in the lead uh, as a housewife in an isolated utopian community. Something sounds vaguely familiar about this person and that sort of description. Um, and that is Florence Pugh. Um, so some big names there um, are, are attached to you know this project, which was already gonna be generating a lot of buzz just by virtue of having Olivia Wilde as a director. One other thing I found interesting about this, Scott, is that this movie is going to be written by Katie Silberman, who wrote Booksmart and set it up as well. And so it's mainly known for, you know, comedies, romantic comedies, but it's obviously going to be doing something very different here with this movie, which is described, you know, heavily as a psychological thriller. So uh, a lot to be excited about, I think, with the news that we got from this movie. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to be excited about. I, I When I first saw this uh, news drop, I, um, you know, I posted in our chat and I just couldn't help but be excited that like Shia LaBeouf and Florence Pugh are acting in the same movie. And they're being directed by Olivia Wilde, who, I mean, Booksmart was my kind of favorite movie from a new director last year, unless one's just obviously slipping my mind right now. It was just such a such a great film, really enjoyable and eminently rewatchable. And the fact that she's teaming up with Kathy Silverman and and creating this very different kind of movie, psychological thriller, exactly like you've described, um, clearly the team there, the writing and directing team is going to be tapping into a very different energy on set. And I don't think that you could really come equipped with, with two, you know, better actors and actresses. I mean, maybe better, but uh, two supremely equipped actors and actresses in the form of Florence Pugh and uh, Shia LaBeouf. And you know, I think Chris Pine is almost the most interesting part in this. It's he, he, his career just really felt like it took a drop after Star Trek uh, his, you know, his, I guess his Star Trek movies kind of puttered out. I mean, there's constantly being tossed around whether a fourth film and that uh, revival will be made, but it doesn't really seem like there's really any appetite for that to be made with Chris Pine behind it. Wonder Woman, uh, him as, as Steve Trevor didn't really take off for him in the way that I'm sure he would have hoped, although he will have maybe a second chance at that with Wonder Woman 1984 uh, coming out later this year for now. But uh, yeah, it's just a really interesting bit of casting. I, I think this is probably him trying to make a different kind of impression with moviegoers and with the Hollywood community. And, and, you know, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I actually finally remember seeing him in a play in Williamstown, actually, when I was in college at the Williamstown theater festival, which I thought was just kind of the coolest thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I have a, a little bit of a soft spot for him. And I, I hope he can do something more with this film with, you know, what's at his disposal than maybe he was ever really able to capture with either uh, star Trek or wonder woman. Yeah, uh, and I wonder if he is just trying to sort of reinvent himself as more of a supporting actor now, because I think Star Trek was his his you know attempt at being a leading man, and it went okay for him for a while. But I think Star Trek Beyond, in particular, uh, I, people just lost interest by the end of that, and I, I'm yeah. not exactly sure the financial numbers, but I don't think it did very well at the box office. And obviously, plans for a fourth movie were put on a you know pretty much permanent hiatus. Um, and so I, I do wonder, you know, even, even with Wonder Woman, obviously big, big property, but he is not the leading character in the movie. I mean, he is the quote unquote love interest, I guess, for uh, for Diana, for Gal Gadot's character. Um, and so, yeah, this is 
it doesn't seem like he's going to have a leading role here. I, I think that Florence, I mean, Florence Pugh is definitely playing the lead and I would suspect that probably Shia LaBeouf is going to be her husband, but I guess that's just mere speculation. I guess it could be Chris Pine, but regardless, he will be in a supporting role. So that's, that's a good point. I think you bring up that we are seeing him maybe trying to, you know, pursue a different angle to yeah. his career, but yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm excited movie. for you to see. I know, I know you. I you know we kind of did the the Shia inverse last year, where I saw Honey Boy and you saw the Peanut Butter, or, yeah, Peanut Butter mm. Falcon. And I'm just excited to see Shia kind of hopefully continue that trend because I I do still plan on revisiting Peanut Butter Falcon, but I loved Honey Boy last year. I think it did. I don't think it, it ended up in my top ten by the time I'd seen all the movies uh, that I ended up seeing. But I think at the time we did our podcast, I think it was in my. I think it was my number ten. Um, and so I couldn't, I can't recommend that movie strongly enough for people who missed it last year. Cause it's on Amazon prime. Yeah. I really want to watch it. Honestly, there's not much of an excuse for why I haven't watched it yet, but I will probably get around to it sooner rather than later. Cause it is a relatively short watch, which yep. you know, less than 90 minutes. Yeah. So as far as this movie goes though, don't you worry, darling, it was supposed to uh, begin uh, or don't worry, darling, rather it was supposed to start filming pretty soon, but obviously that's not happening anymore. Um, and so New Line, who is going to be the distributor here, the, the production company is uh, looking for, you know, whenever this lockdown ends as sort of the, the starting point for this film. So who knows when this thing will actually release? Probably not next year. It will probably probably be a 2022 release, but we, we will see. Uh, it all depends on when this lockdown ends, I yeah. suppose. It, it also depends on how much post-production the movie needs. I mean, if it's not a movie yeah. that's going to require visual effects, then maybe they can expedite that and get it out in the fall next year. And again, like you said, it just all depends on when they can actually get into production on things because it sounds like it's ready to go. It's that pre-production is done. They have their script. Um, I'm sure they've been practice, you know, practicing and, 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 and doing reads of, of the script, et cetera. Because that's something that you can't—you don't have to necessarily be in person. Obviously, it helps to be in person for that kind of thing, but uh, there are certain things that you can do to prepare, I, I suppose. But Florence Pugh is someone who's, you know, getting busier and busier, and this whole pandemic and and shutdown of productions is not helping her schedule, which I think might even be the hardest part of getting this film done at some point. And the same goes for Olivia Wilde too. To be fair, I mean, she is someone who also has, a, I think, another movie based off a true story from some Olympic gymnast. I can't remember. She also has another like, movie yeah. going. Uh, so she's pretty busy too. So hopefully this can get done and, and get out to theaters. Cause there's just a lot to be excited about with this, with this film. Yeah. Florence Pugh in a utopian community. It's becoming one of my favorite subgenres of movie. Hopefully this one uh, delivers in the way that, uh, that Midsommar did, but well, um, I don't know if I call that, that community utopic, but I'll, I'll let you, well, they, your they certainly, they certainly felt that it was, but yeah, um, maybe certainly we, as the audience did not, but all right, Scott, well, I think that should just about do it for this episode of some like it, Scott, where can our listeners find you on Twitter at S Shelton two zero one three. And I am at Scarby Dent. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. If you have and you'd like to support us, you can do that in a couple ways. Don't forget about our Patreon page, Media Plug Pods, or patreon.com slash media plug pods. Uh, you can support us over there. Even if you can't, we hope you will rate, review, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And also subscribe to our newsletter uh, via the link in the show notes for this episode. Uh, and of course, we hope that you will be back for our next episode in which we will be reviewing the Chris Hemsworth starring Netflix action thriller Extraction.
Uh, but until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. See you next time.